How's everybody? My name's Alan. Welcome to Greater Alton. Glad everybody's here this morning. Uh, we are in the middle of a group of lessons entitled Get Out. Part of our new identity and part of what God calls us to get out and to do is to get out and speak out. Think about this for a second. If I go out and I really am a turn-the-other-cheek kind of guy, and I'll take the dirty jobs, I'll, I'll put everybody ahead of me, and I'll serve at my own expense without reward, and I don't say anything about Jesus, what do people think? How do they explain that? I think probably you've got notes and there are some sentences that have blanks. If I don't preach today, you're going to fill in those blanks based on the best that you can understand it, right? You think you'll get them right? Some of you will. They're not that difficult because I put scriptures and kind of highlighted some things. Whenever we go out and we do things that are different and we stand out, but we don't speak out, it's like we're creating half the sentence and people have blanks, and so they fill them in the best way they know how to. What's the likelihood if I'm going out there and I'm being this different kind of guy and I'm serving like we're talking about, but I don't say anything about why? What's the likelihood that someone's going to say, boy, that Alan Hamlin, he's a pretty good guy. He's a nice guy. Cub fan, but hey, you know, we can live with that. He's doing good things. What's, what if we get all these people from Greater Alton? And, and Greater Alton people are everywhere helping with all these things and being that same kind of different, and none of us talk about Jesus. What's going to be said? That church, they're a good church. Some of them are Cub fans, but you know, they're all right. You know, they're doing kind of nice things. Is that really what we're supposed to be speaking out of? I mean, is, is that how it's supposed to work? I don't think so. And I'm going to try and make the point to you today, and I'm going to hopefully not take forever to do it. Uh, Romans 10, verses 13 through 15. Paul is talking to a group of Christians in Rome, and I think he's got something here that's very interesting for us to look at. He said, starting there in verse 13, he says, Everyone. Now, who does that include? Only everyone is everyone? This is everyone, literally everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What we should understand that to mean is there is nobody that God doesn't want. There is nobody that is beyond God's reach. But they don't get to come to him on their terms. There's a lot in this one little short sentence. Everyone who does what? Calls on the name of the Lord. Those are the ones that get to be saved. But now he goes on to kind of think this through a little bit. How then can they call on the one whom they've not believed in? Why would they ask for Jesus if they don't believe in him? And how can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? How can they have anything to understand about God if they haven't heard anything from him or heard anything about him? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? You see the thought, the thought here? God wants everyone. He wants to give everybody a chance. And they will never get a chance unless we get out and speak out. And it says here that we're supposed to preach. How can anyone preach unless they're sent? God has sent, and here's the first point. I really, I've just got two points today and a couple of questions to maybe draw a little bit more of a crisp definition of some things. The first point is, is if to speak out for God means I must preach. So in your bulletins, you should find a sign-up list. 
and we'll write you down and we'll just start passing this around and next week maybe Ashley you can do the preaching because this says to everybody right I didn't find out I was preaching today until yesterday mid-morning so you guys at least get a whole week to put it together am I misinterpreting yes (laughs) do you think First of all, you understand that the, there's quite a bit of change in language between Koine Greek 2,000 years ago and modern English, right? And that we don't have exact words that match. They don't just sit on top of each other perfectly and mean the same thing. So whenever we're reading our Bible, we're trying to get the nearest, closest English word to communicate what was actually said in Greek. Do you think that whenever Paul said that they need someone to be sent to preach, and nobody's going to believe about this Jesus unless people speak up and preach about him. Do you think that he's talking about what I'm doing here this morning, or trying to do here this morning? Is this the job? Is that what that's saying? That everybody here is supposed to stand up here, or some other pulpit and preach? Is that the intent? I don't even think that they did this this way. I think that this is kind of a modern convention that's grown over many years to where we have a guy up on a stage with a microphone talking to a whole bunch of other people that have assembled without harassment. I think this is relatively unique in history. It's kind of a bubble in history. I hope it lasts a while. It's easy. Easier than trying to hide in a cave. But I don't think this is what they had in mind of, of, of preaching. So let's look at what that original Greek word was and what preaching Paul's talking about. It's the Greek word kariso. Now, I may have mispronounced that. I'm not a Greek student, so I just did the best I could with the transliteration. But here's what it means. It means to publish, to proclaim. You're familiar with those words. It just means to publish or proclaim, but as a herald. Ah, what's a herald? I never really thought about it. I I, I hear the word herald. I know it has something to do with speaking. And about the most familiarity I've got with the idea of a herald is the Christmas carol. Hark the Herald Angel. I thought that was his name for a long time. Harold was this angel who was supposed to get all excited. It's actually, Harold is a job. But see, we don't think of heralds today quite the same way. Heralds were originally messengers. And this is in your notes. They were originally, in Paul's day, whenever he's talking about preaching, that's the kind of thing, this public announcement, would be the job of a herald. And a herald was someone more akin to our modern-day diplomats. They would be sent out by a king or a sovereign to take a message or a proclamation someplace. And this was kind of common in the ancient world. If we want to get a message out, we got social media, we got television, even newspapers. They didn't have those kind of luxuries. So you, you saw this a lot in the Roman Empire because they would change over from one Caesar to the next. And so anytime that there was a new guy in charge, they would send out heralds to preach. And they would go to the furthest reaches of the kingdom. And you know what their message was? You need to go to our church. No. What they said was, there is a new king. Whether you knew it or not, there's a new king. And he demands absolute obedience and absolute loyalty. He's entitled to it. You may want to think about that. And it was left to that person to decide, are they going to live in submission to this new king or were they going to live in rebellion to this new king? The job that you and I am supposed to do is to be heralds, to go out and to speak out. We have been sent by our sovereign to give a message. What message are we supposed to say? 
They call it the gospel. Point number two, if you're counting. We're supposed to get out and speak out and preach the gospel. In Mark 16, 15 through 16, Jesus told the disciples, he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. You get the sense of a new king is sending out word that there's a new king. You're supposed to preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever. Now look at this. Paul just said everyone. Mark just says whoever. Uh, Paul said everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a condition here. It's not on their terms. It's on God's terms. And Mark says whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. This isn't about taking a message and people can be saved any way they want to. God's got conditions. He's not bartering. God's not cutting deals uniquely for one individual different than another. Nobody comes to God on their own terms. Our job is to make sure they understand the terms and to make sure that they understand the message and they understand the gospel. He says, whoever does not believe will be condemned. Okay, so we've established two things. Every one of us is to be a preacher. Every one of us who believes in Jesus is to be a preacher, not a pulpit guy, not a guy with a microphone who talks to large crowds. Thankfully, because public, public speaking is one of people's, it's the most common fear among people ever. Everybody is a little nervous about public speaking, right? I'm a little nervous about it. I imagine you are too. So I'm glad that God doesn't require us to do this all the time or all of us to do this, but he requires all of us to work for him as a diplomat and to take the message. And the message is called the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? If you've been a Christian for a while, this is what you've supposed to been telling people. What is the gospel? So I'd like for you to just kind of mentally pause for a second and think. If somebody were to ask you today, please, sir, please, ma'am, would you tell me the gospel? That hasn't ever happened to me yet. I've been a Christian for almost 40 years and nobody's really asked me to tell them the gospel unless they're trying to teach me what it was. How would you answer? Could you tell them the gospel? What is the gospel? How did the apostles tell the gospel? One of the things I'm really grateful about with, this, with our church is we have never been a congregation where our people say, you want to know about Jesus? Let me take you to the preacher. You want to know the gospel? He's got all the answers. We'll let him do the studying. You'd be surprised how many congregations that's exactly the way they operate. That's not what I'm reading here. What I'm reading here is that every one of you needs to know what the gospel is and how to communicate it to somebody else. So let's spend a little time with what the gospel is. Today, our word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion. So whenever this originally was written in Greek, they used the word euangelion to talk about. That's what Jesus said. Go spread the euangelion. What is the euangelion? It's good news. Now, I don't mean to be overly symptomatic here, but... Let's break apart. Good news. What is news? Is it something that might happen someday? Is it something that we're counting on happening somewhere along the line? It's something that's already happened. Ah, here's the other half. It's good news. Right? Now, is there anybody here who really has a problem sharing good news? 
Not usually. Is there anybody here who is intimidated with the idea of talking about Jesus and sharing the gospel? Ah, why? The gospel is good news. You don't mind telling people good news, but the gospel kind of sets you back just a little bit and your comfort zone begins to get just a little crowded. And you, I'm telling you, I'm hoping to give you the idea today that you shouldn't feel that way and you don't have to feel that way. It's not as complicated as some people make it seem. And what I hope to do is show you how they presented the gospel, at least two of our apostles, how they presented the gospel in their day. By the way, that word euangelion, did you know that that was originally a military term? Yeah, so like whenever Caesar beat up uh, Vercingetorix, I think was the guy's name, and he took over Gaul, which is modern-day France, guess what he did? He sent out heralds with the euangelion, the good news, and they went throughout all of Gaul and said, you know what, Rome's in charge, Caesar is lord. But it didn't just go there, they also went back to Rome. And they spread the good news. It had a military flavor of a conquest. should tell us a little bit about something, Whenever the gospel writers, the apostles, chose that word to tell us about the good news about Jesus. Folks, there's been a war. It's still going on, but it's already been won. That's why it's good news. The kingdom of God is invading this world. And that's very good news. Okay. Let's look at how Paul tells the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. I've read several different guys who've suggested that this is the most concise retelling of how they told the gospel in the first century. And I'm going to show you another scripture where Peter tells the gospel, and you can compare how much is similar between their two accounts of it. So look what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Okay, Paul received something. Now, we've got most of the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul. Paul had a lot to say. Would you agree? If you've read through some of his letters, it's not always easy to understand what Paul's saying. But not everything was of equal importance. He says here, this is it. This is the most important, and this is what I always pass on. This is what I passed on to you. It was passed on to me. So now he's going to tell us the gospel. You ready? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's part one. Is this complicated? Is this unfamiliar? The reason why I think he throws in according to scripture is because God had been saying all along, I'm going to make things right. This is going to happen. Hundreds of years before Jesus died on that cross, God said it was going to happen that way. This wasn't a fluke. This wasn't a surprise. This wasn't just an accident. You will hear people say that, all of those things, but that's not the case. This was prophesied. This was planned. This was intentional. So there's the first part. Jesus, the Christ, died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried. Why is that significant? Because he was truly dead. They were not ignorant in the old days. They knew the difference between someone who was wounded, someone who was drugged, someone who had passed out, somebody who was faking it. They knew he was dead. So they buried him. And thirdly, that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures. Here's this according to scriptures. It was God's plan he had written hundreds years ago that he would raise his anointed one from the grave that he would never have to die again. 
Now, if we just stop right there, and you take... See, we hear this message so often that we become kind of numb to it. If you can, try to put yourself in the shoes of a first century person who had never heard this story before. Someone says, yeah, this guy, he was crucified for us. Yeah, they put him on trial, found him guilty, but really it was God's staged event for our benefit. And they buried him, they killed him, they buried him. And you know what God did? He raised him from the dead. Does that sound like a, oh yeah, great, cool. Does that sound believable? Where I'm from, that sounds like a wildfire lie. You know? So let's just play it this way. Let's say you've got a friend. He's innocent, but he's convicted of a serious crime. He's thrown in prison. And they execute him. He gets the death penalty. You're there. You see the execution. You go to the funeral home. You see the corpse laid out. If you're gutsy enough and not weirded out by it, you touch the cold flesh. You know that he's really dead. And you go to the graveside and you see them put him in the box, they put him in the hole, they put the dirt over the top of it. He's dead. It's a normal experience. Some of us have had this, right? Now you're driving home and you get a text from one of your friends. Joe's alive. I just saw him. Do you believe that story? Probably not. There could be other ways to explain this. Joe's emotional. (laughs) Or the guy that's telling you is is emotional. He's upset. He's seeing things. Sometimes this happens. Maybe he's been drinking. There's there's lots of ways, right? But what happens if your phone starts blowing up? And all of a sudden, it's not just one friend. It's 30. And they're saying they didn't just see your dead friend. They talked to him. They sat down, they touched him. They had conversation, they had a meal with him. And he didn't go away in a vanish. I don't know about you, but I'm turning my car around and going and checking this stuff out. How about you? Check out what Paul says after he tells the gospel. He says that after he was raised on the third day according to scriptures, verse 5, he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, those are the apostles. After that, now, by the way, We could explain his inner core making up a story, right? Well, they wanted to carry on. They had a movement going. They're they're counting on some things. They lost their leader, so now they want everybody to believe their leader's really alive. We could probably go there, right? Make that assumption. But look what he says next. He says, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Why do you think he puts in this most of them are still living clause? You could check it out. Now, I used to be a police officer. Some of the most important evidence was eyewitness testimony. That has always been kind of the gold standard. But I want to tell you, I have worked accidents, street, you know, vehicle accidents, where I got three people standing in this intersection, they all saw the same car accident. You know how many different stories I got? Four. Really? Oh, that, that's this way, isn't it? This is four, right? That's six? What's four? Four. <laughs> I know this is three. I, I'm trying to learn a little bit of sign language. And then I, was, no, I, tried, to, I tried to show off, and I got hammered. Anyway. <laughs> It's hard to get three people to tell the same story. Over 500. 
And Paul's saying, yeah, this is uh, Paul. He's saying, you can go talk to them. They're still alive. He's making a case that scholars and skeptics alike have not been able to explain away. He says, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Verse 7, those are your authors of the New Testament. You know who James is, don't you? That's Jesus' little brother. Do you think James always believed that Jesus was the Christ? The one foretold in scriptures? I think he thought his brother was nuts. And could you imagine how tough it would have been to grow up in that house? Mary be barking at him, why can't you be like your older brother? Son of God? <laughs> I don't think that James was persuaded at first. Uh, Billy Stigall the other day put a, uh, there you are Bill, he put a, uh, a, a video from YouTube of a, of a guy who used to be Muslim. And he was quite articulate and, and an advocate for his faith. And you still love, he says, harassing Christians because they couldn't defend their own faith. And he would try to shoot down the Bible and explain away all the different um, Christian evidences. He said, but the one I couldn't explain away, and the one that caused me to repent and become a Christian, is an argument that no one has found an answer to yet, and they call it the minimal facts. Minimal facts. Whether you know it or not, Paul basically just laid them out. Now, I'm talking about right now, the most persuasive argument for the truth of Christianity comes down to these five things. And here they are. One, Jesus died by crucifixion. Nobody really disputes this. There's way too much historical evidence and eyewitness accounts to contend anything reasonable about him dying any other way. That he did die by crucifixion. Two, the disciples of Jesus were sincerely convinced that he rose from the dead and appeared to them. That's obvious. The lives that they lived were surrendered totally. None of them died peacefully of old age in their sleep that we know of. Legends, maybe John. He was on Patmos. I've, I've kind of forgotten the legend. The Bible doesn't tell us what happened to these guys. Uh, there's Fox's Book of Martyrs, and they talk about you know, the, just the, the different ways that they think the apostles died. But most of them did not eat, live easy lives. Would you do that for a lie? No, no, that doesn't make any sense. Third one, Paul, who was a persecutor of Christians, suddenly changed his beliefs towards Christianity. This is undisputable. Why would he do that? If you don't know much about Paul, Paul was the heir apparent to Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a very respected public figure. He had job security. He had popularity. He was a rock star on the rise. And when he became a Christian, he burnt every bridge and became the persecuted and the hunted. And he lost family. He lost respect. He burned it all. Why would he do that for a lie? But it's undisputed that he did it. Number four, James, the brother of Jesus, who was a skeptic of the Christian faith, suddenly changed his beliefs towards Christianity. Even the staunchest skeptics and uh, critics of Christianity acknowledge all five of these. And the last one is the tomb of Jesus was found empty three days after the crucifixion of Jesus. There is so much evidence that nobody disputes these things. Nobody credible disputes these things. And here's Paul saying, I tell you what's important. What's of first importance? Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. And we got all these witnesses that you can't explain if it's a lie. 
These are eyewitness testimonies. Is the New Testament perfect? Some would say yes. I think that there, there might have been over 2,000 years some things that are hard to explain. I can tell you this, they're eyewitness testimony. And that's pretty good. And Paul lays it out for us. What's the gospel? Jesus was crucified. They buried him. He rose from the dead. And it's believable. It's believable. Now, what you make of those facts, that's another discussion. But nobody can get around these facts. You don't have to know that minimal argument, but I thought that that was a good thing to tell you about because it impressed me. This story is not a wildfire lie. This is not just a fanciful story from ancient times. This is something that nobody can explain away. This is solid. It's the gospel. The gospel is good news, right? Well, that means that it's not good advice. I'd like for you to think about that difference in in distinction real quick. Good news is not good advice. Good news is telling you something good that's already happened. Good advice is something that if you do it, something good will happen. And I think a lot of our hesitance to speak out for Jesus comes because we confuse good news with good advice. And so we busy ourselves trying to tell people, this is a sin, that's a sin, you shouldn't do this, you should do that. And sometimes we back down because we don't want to offend people. And we don't want to burn bridges and just needlessly push people away. Well, if I, if I tell them, I, why don't you come to church, they'll think I think they're going to hell. Anybody here felt that way? I have. I remember passing a guy uh, a few months back. I was on my way here for a small group study, and there was a guy standing out with a, a sandwich board sign on his chest that says, Repent of your sins or burn in hell. He was standing at the Walgreens down at the corner of uh, College and uh, Washington. If I hadn't been pressed for time, I think I'd have pulled over and talked to him because I really had this burning question I wanted to ask him. Is that working? We're told to preach the gospel. I just showed you where we're told to preach the gospel. Is anybody thinking that what you're telling them is good news? Because what you're telling them is the way you know to live, you're doing your best, you're trying to do what you think is going to turn out right, which is the definition of being lost, by the way. You're not sure where you're going. You don't know how to get where you want to go. So you're telling them that if they'll just quit everything they know about how to live life, then they won't burn in hell. And that's your idea of good news. That's not what Paul said was of first importance. Paul said what was of first importance is that Jesus has risen from the dead. He was crucified for our sins. He has come back to life and he will not ever die again. His body will not suffer decay. Something has changed because of that reality. That means something. It's bigger than repent or burn. There's something more to it. I don't think, I think if we would understand that we're not just trying to rush up and tell people good advice, that what we've got is good news about something that's already happened, we'd be a little less cowardly about speaking up. Because we can just tell the good news that Jesus is alive. And wherever they get that reality, then we might get a chance to give them some good advice. But here's a, here's a truth I want to pass on to you. Rules don't matter if they don't understand the new reality. Whenever I was single, before I was married, do you think I was real interested in marriage advice? Not so much. It seemed like, ah, that's good, you know. 
I wasn't, I wasn't arguing with any of it. After I got married, do you think I needed good marriage advice? Oh, buddy. I knew I was in over my head. Why approach the homosexual and try to tell them that homosexuality is wrong before you've established that Jesus isn't dead? Why approach somebody who's got an addiction to whatever? They're, they're living in darkness. Why try to attack what they're doing and their lifestyle and the way that they feel about themselves before you've told them why they should ask those questions? And I think it's our fear of getting into those areas that keeps us from speaking out. And I'm here to tell you, the gospel doesn't require us to get into the good advice. First, it requires us to establish there's a reason to understand that Jesus is alive. And that has changed everything. Well, why has it changed everything? Here's the next question. Why does the gospel matter? Why is this such a big deal that he rose from dead? If you're thinking about it, it should be fairly obvious, at least on some levels, that this is not something that ever happens. This is relatively unique in human history for someone to come back three days dead. But if that doesn't impress you on its own, well, what does all that mean that he came back from the dead? Well, like I told you, I got this assignment to preach yesterday. And after I put my my notes and sent those in, I actually decided I wanted to read a larger portion of Scripture than what I've got in your notes. But this is out of Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 43, I'm going to read to you. And this is Peter telling the gospel. Now, we've just seen how, how Paul told the gospel, right? So Peter's going to tell the, tell the gospel now. Now, this is on the occasion where Cornelius, a Roman, a Gentile Roman, and a centurion, this is an intimidating figure, and Jews don't associate to these guys, much less go into their houses. That's another whole big story. But Peter has just gone into this guy's house because this guy has been told by an angel to go and send for Peter. And so when he gets there... Cornelius has got his whole family, and they're waiting to hear what? The euangelion, the good news. And this is what Peter says. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Do you see the commonality here? There is nobody excluded. This is for everybody, but it is never on a person's terms. It is always on God's terms. What are the terms that Peter says to these guys? They've got to fear him. So we've got call on his name, we've got uh, believe and be baptized, and we've got fear. I don't think he's talking about fear like, oh, I'm, I'm scared to death. I think this is fear like respect. If you don't respect God, you don't listen to him. Today it's pretty popular for people to sing songs and to preach messages to make God sound like this big teddy bear who's all about you. Folks, that is not the gospel that was preached in the first century we're to be all about God, not the other way around. Is God ultimately supremely loving and invested in you? Yes, but you were created for him, not the other way around. So Peter starts off with the very same thing. And he says in verse 36, You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. He's talking about all of the Old Testament. They were expecting someone to show up to do this job. They didn't recognize him when he got there, but... All that they had ever learned out of the Old Testament prophesied that there would be a day when God would send a Messiah, someone to set it right. And so he's referencing, you guys know this. And he says in verse 37, you know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, 
how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Now that's a mouthful, right? Understand this. None of this happened in secret. You could go anywhere in that time frame, mention John the Baptist, and they knew who he was. This was not done in secret. This was not just something that nobody ever heard of. Even Cornelius had heard all about John and Jesus. Everybody knew about this guy. His, he had th- three, years of, three years of ministry. By the way, you know every other major religion is based on some guy who claims that he had some interaction with some deity when nobody else was around. You realize that, right? Check it out. They all got a message from somebody and nobody got to see it. You're just supposed to take their word for it. Christianity, Jesus is the message. And he didn't do anything privately. He did it all very publicly. He did it for three years. Everybody knew about it. That is a huge distinction. Verse 39, he says, And we are witnesses. Here's your eyewitness testimony again. Of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem... And here comes the gospel. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. Sound like Paul? But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. Sounds like the same thing, isn't it? How hard is it for you to tell the gospel? You think this is so complicated you can't? I mean, I'm giving you a lot more than you have to know. If you know that he was killed for our sins, that he was buried... And that God raised him from the dead. You've got enough to tell the gospel. I'm just giving you more information to hopefully make you feel really secure in your ability to tell the gospel whenever you're out there around people. Verse 41, he says, He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Folks, this isn't just, I caught a glimpse of him. I saw his face in my mashed potatoes. I saw a sign in the sky. The clouds looked like chariots. And no, this is sitting down to eat. This is a whole different level. This is hard to argue with. We got an eyewitness. Paul said there was over 500 of them at one time who had this experience. And and Peter's just saying, listen, man, we sat down and ate with him after he rose from the dead. And listen to this, verse 42. He commanded us to preach to the people. There's that, that herald job again. To preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. Now this, Paul didn't say it this way. But Peter includes in his good news that God has appointed this Jesus as a judge. Not just a judge for a little while. Not just a judge for this circumstance or that circumstance. But a judge for everyone for all time. Everybody who's ever lived And everybody who ever will live, God has appointed Jesus as judge. And that's good news. How many of you guys feel real good about a judge coming to town that you're going to stand before? That sounds a little intimidating, right? I don't think that we're looking at that the same way that these guys looked at it. Have you ever watched a Western where lawless men are running the town? Where they're riding roughshod, they're... Raping and pillaging and killing people's cattle. Cub fans and Democrats, it's all gone crazy, right? And then they send in the judge. Now, are you, is that good news that the judge is coming to town? 
Depends on what color hat you're wearing, right? If you're watching a Western. Make no mistake, there's not every human is excited about the justice of God. Some people are evil. Some people love the darkness. But those of us who really want things to be set right are excited to hear that the judge is coming because it means that God is setting things right. I do not believe that God intended for us to live in a fallen world. I don't think he created the earth to be like it is. Apparently, death was not his idea. Death was a consequence of sin. Corruption, decay, things that don't stay good, that they just break down over time, apparently was not a part of his design. Our world tries to tear itself apart. Literally, the the, the physical planet is fighting itself and fighting us. And we fight each other. And none of this was how God intended it to be. It's all a consequence of sin. Sin is more than just the one bad choice or the lifetime of bad choices that we make. Those are like little s sins. But there is a dynamic in the world, kind of like the law of gravity. There's the law of sin and death. The law of gravity, I could prove it real easy. All I got to do is pull my feet up and head that way. And you will see what happens to me. Every time, I'm going to go splat on the concrete. And you will too. We don't even challenge it. It's what happens. Now we live in a world that we were never designed to live in, and it's one that has the force, the law of sin and death. Later on, I showed you 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is talking about the gospel. You go on and read about what he's talking about that, and he'll say that Jesus has conquered every foe except the last one, and that's death. One day he's going to do away with that too. See, here's the thing. God didn't say, oh, man, why did they screw up my plan? Well, I'm going to let this one just burn down. Done with it. Gave up. I'll just do something different. I don't think that's what he did. I don't think that would make him a good creator. I think what he did was he said, I'm not going to give up on it. I'm going to put it right. And I think he said way back in Genesis, one day I'm going to set this right. I'm going to do this right. And he stepped in to human history. He tabernacled with us in the, in the body of Jesus. He paid the price. He bought back everything that he created. And Jesus is the first bit of that new creation. It's interesting to me that it seems like in Genesis, God created everything and his crowning achievement was man at the end. And yet it seems to me what he's doing now is he's starting in the new creation with man, with his people. And Jesus is the first one of that, the firstborn of many brothers. And what comes after that, God's going to make perfect for us. This is good news. This is really good news. Beware of different Gospels. Beware of different Gospels. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul talks about this in Galatians 1, 6-8. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different Gospel, which is really no Gospel at all. See, now their issue was, there's some guys who come in and said, you've got to become Jews before you can become Christians. And so it was about your works. You had to qualify for God's grace. And Paul was pretty upset about this. He goes on and he says, that's not good news. He says, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion or trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Do you think that perverting the gospel of Christ was only that one issue or that one time? Or do you think maybe it still happens today? I think it still happens today. 
He said, but even if we are an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As I've already said, so I now say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than that which you have already accepted, let them be under God's curse. How strong is Paul on this gospel message? He's pretty intense about this. He wants us to get this message straight, not to twist it into something else. I want you to know that there are a lot of people who would line up to tell you that what I've told you this morning is not good enough. That simply being a different kind of human, that living your life intentionally for Christ out amongst people, going through the open doors and telling this gospel that Jesus died for our sins and he is risen, God raised him and has appointed him as judge of the living and the dead, that that will not build your church. That's not good enough. They'll say things like, no, 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 you've got to have these kind of ministries. You've got to have these kind of events. You've got to do this, and you've got to do that, and you've got to do the other, and the, on, the list goes on and on and on and on. But I want to show you something. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5, Paul said, for what we preach. Now here's this, this preaching, this herald job again. This is what Paul preached. He says, what we preach is not us. We're not preaching about ourselves. We're preaching about Jesus at Christ as Lord, as owner. What was Paul running around telling people about? The risen Savior who now owns it all. He's king. Whether you knew it or not, you owe him your absolute loyalty and your absolute obedience. And he says, we preach him, Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Why are we out doing this volunteer work? My neighbors sometimes ask me, why am I the way I am towards them? And I I tell them because I'm worshiping Jesus and he commands me to treat you this way. Some of my neighbors, it's no sweat because I like them. And that's cool. But then they watch me treat the neighbors who do not like me the same way. And they see the crap I take from those neighbors. And they say, why do you let them get by with that? For the same reason I do serve you. I serve Jesus. And if you say, I know for a fact I'm not a good guy. I've proven it over and over in my life. I'm not a good guy. If you see anything good in me, all you're seeing is a dim reflection of my Lord. He's incredibly good. And so I tell them this. But what I also take from this verse is, we're supposed to preach Jesus and Him crucified, Him resurrected. How many times do we talk about the resurrection of Jesus? What we are not supposed to be preaching is ourselves or our church. I'm trying to lean into this because I think this is incredibly important. How many churches and people on Facebook, they brag about their church. They brag about their preacher. Their church is the answer to your problems. Careful, folks. That could be a distortion of the gospel. We're supposed to be talking about Jesus, not us. That's not the only way that this message can get distorted. Let's make sure that we tell the gospel as close as we can understand it to the way that it was told in the first century because they didn't have buildings, they didn't have these kind of programs and ministries and all these other things to rely on, and yet they turned the whole world upside down. Actually, it was right side up. And they did it through the strength of the message that was eyewitness testified to. 
that Jesus had risen from the dead. Once you establish that reality, then we get a chance to talk about what it means and how it applies. The last thing I want to leave you with here comes from uh, 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 10. And this is out of the message. The message is not a translation. It is a paraphrase. So it's some guy telling you what he thinks Peter was saying. In this particular passage, I wanted to use it because he says it's so easy to understand, and I think it's close to what was actually said, close enough that I can say it to you this way. He says in chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, he says, But you are the ones chosen by God. Peter was telling the Christians that we've been chosen by God. That includes you guys. That wasn't there and then. That's us and them. Chosen by God. Chosen for the high calling of priestly work. Not only are you preachers, you're priests. Chosen to be a holy people. Holy means set apart for one purpose. Whatever you do for a job, that isn't your purpose. Whatever role you have in your family, that's not your purpose. You have one purpose. It's to serve an almighty God. That's pretty cool. He says, God's instruments to do his work and speak out for him. We are supposed to stand out. We're supposed to get out. We're supposed to go through those doors that he opens for us. And we're supposed to speak up for him. God's plan for people has always been to use people to deliver his message. I can't tell you why. I think a thundering voice from heaven would be far superior than anything I could do here on a Sunday morning or in my neighborhood. But for some reason, God has always relied upon the preaching through this testimony, through this telling of the good news, being a herald, going out into all this land, all the areas where God owns and informing people that there is a new king. And he does demand absolute loyalty and obedience. And he says, we speak out for him to tell others of the night and day difference he made for you. See, I think when we tell the gospel about who Jesus is, I think we ought to tell him what he's done for us. Has he made a night and day difference in your life? He has in mine. There was a time whenever I first came here, I was in the middle of a divorce. I had started off as a Christian, and I didn't pay real good attention to what my king was asking me to do. I was doing about what everybody else was doing, and I got the same kind of beating everybody else got. And so I began to think, I need to rethink how I'm approaching life. And I moved here not because this was the place, but this was a place where I could focus in on actually learning how to obey my God and learn how to tell the gospel and to live this different life that he's called me to. And you know what? God didn't snap his finger and right the ship. He didn't take away all my pain. He didn't take away all the unfair things that I was going through. In fact, he sent a few more my way. But I look at it entirely differently now. Job says that as surely as sparks fly upward, man is born for adversity. Everybody suffers. Whether you understand this message, whether you believe this message, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, you will have problems. But not everybody is blessed or benefited by their problems. Not everybody's problems serve a greater purpose. But in Christ, they do. And God allowed me to go through some of those things because there was no other way to shave the hard edges off of me. My stubbornness, my pride, my selfishness. But you know, he's really good at at taking us and changing us. And I'm not completely around the corner on some of those. 
He's still working on me as he is on you. In Christ, all those things matter for his ends and for his purposes. And I can tell people, you can tell people, we're supposed to tell people about the difference that he's made from nothing to something. I had no purpose beyond what I could earn and spend. What I could earn and spend. The friendships that I could maybe establish. The family I could attempt to build. Remember, you're building on an unsolid foundation. Those don't last too long. I was nothing. Listen, God doesn't give this kind of an important message to somebody that doesn't matter. You matter. This says you matter. If he's entrusted you with the gospel, you matter. Diplomats matter. You've gone from nothing to something and from rejected to accepted. See, there was a time when all of us were outside looking in. All of us were there, weren't we? And yet now we've become insiders. We're not enemies of God anymore. We're not objects of wrath. We don't have to be afraid of the judge. We should welcome and encourage him to come quickly. Not because we're so good that we deserve anything, but because we've sworn allegiance to the one who pardons our sins and makes us a part of what he's doing. None of us are so jacked up and so far off that he won't use us. But he never uses us on our terms. He uses us on his. And he's given us an easy message to take as we're going out. Jesus is alive. He's risen. We're going to take communion. You know, every, every day, every week, when we take communion, we try to find a different way to look at it. It's almost like a diamond. A diamond has lots of facets, right? And you can hone in on any one of those facets and try to explain it. But when we kind of step back and you see all of them, it's a beautiful exquisite thing that's priceless sometimes. And when we draw back and we look at what communion is about, it's a little bit like a diamond. Each week we maybe look at a different facet of it, but ultimately it shouts that this is true. It shouts that Jesus has risen from the dead, and because of it, all of us are different. We have a chance to walk with Him, to serve Him. We're created new. In Him, we are the new creation. And anybody can be a part of it. They just have to accept his terms. And you know what? It's not just something that happened back there, and that's the end of it. This is pointing to where this is all leading. Folks, the Bible is not a movie where the credits are rolling. We've seen the whole story, and we're just waiting for the end to pop up at the bottom of it. The Bible is a story that's still in motion. It's still playing out. We have a role in this. We're in the movie. We're in the story. We're a part of God's story. And when we take this communion, we're not only celebrating that Jesus died for us and that he raised from the dead, but that he's coming again. And that is such good news. How can you not speak up? And in fact, Paul says that when you do this, you are speaking up. So I would encourage you, if you don't believe this, Let this pass you by, because you don't want to do anything in hypocrisy. But if you believe this, then take it and celebrate with the rest of us. And let's let it nourish us for the work that, you know, you've got to go do work. I tried to lift some furniture the other day. I didn't eat breakfast. I showed my age just a few hours into that, man. I was like, And, and Wayne, Wayne has got real furniture made out of real wood. Have you ever lifted any real wood furniture in a while? 
That's for the younger cats. It certainly isn't for somebody who didn't eat breakfast. And a lot of us don't realize that what we're doing here with communion is we're nourishing on Jesus himself for the same reason, to go do the work. We are to go do the work, and this is how he builds I don't understand it all, but I know this is a part of it. Let it nourish you this morning. If you would, bow and pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, wow, your good news is almost too good to believe. But yet, there's too much evidence to ignore. Father, I pray that you'll make us a people that will get out and that will speak out. Father, give us the boldness to proclaim it as clearly as we should. We don't have to have all the answers. I sometimes get excited and want to tell my, my wife good news, and she always wants to ask me questions that I can't answer, and it's frustrating, but it doesn't, take, it doesn't dim the good news I'm sharing. There are ways to find out the rest of those answers, and I can refer her to somebody who knows more, or we can look it up on the Internet or something. But Father, sometimes we feel like we don't know enough to tell people. We don't know how to answer all their questions. But that should make us a people that doesn't back down from that. That we don't use that as a cop-out not to share what we do know. Jesus is real, he's alive, and he's made a difference in us. Help us to be bold and to just get that message out there. And Father, I pray that in our day we will see your kingdom come. We'll see the euangelion, the good news spread all throughout this area. Father, we love you. We pray that you're pleased with what we do here this morning, with how we've assembled, with the things that we've talked about, the way that we've turned our hearts to you. Father, we pray that you will be pleased with the way that we allow you to work through us in the week to come. And Father, I pray that we'll come back next week ready to feed again, ready to be built up, to carry on the work again. Uh, Father, we love you, and to you goes all the glory, all the honor, all the praise. And it's in Jesus' name we pray for these things. Amen.